I want to welcome you to the fifth podcast of a walk through the Gospels. I'm taking the course that I've been teaching for nearly 30 years at Fruitland Baptist Bible College and turning it into a podcast. Uh, We're going to be looking at that part of the life of Jesus where there are tensions rising between Jesus and the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees. So if you'll look with me, we'll begin in Mark chapter 1. Our verses today will be in the Gospel of Mark. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, They went into Capernaum, and right away they entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Now, we have actually recovered some of the actual sermons preached in synagogues in that day and time, guaranteed to put you to sleep. Uh, None of them would be bold. What they would do is they would read a text from the law and they would go, well, Rabbi Shammai says this could mean this. Rabbi Hillel says this could mean this. But Rabbi Gamaliel says this could mean this. And then they go to the next verse. Can you imagine that was what your Sunday sermon? And then Jesus came along and he says, I say this. You do this. He had authority in what he said. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions and shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. So here we have Jesus encountering a demon-possessed person. I'll just be honest with you. I've been reading Christian literature for quite some time. It's hard to find balanced teaching about demons and spiritual warfare. Uh, When I was getting started out in studies, it was back in the days when liberalism ruled our schools and seminaries. I had professors that say, we're far beyond believing in an actual devil and an actual group of demons that basically that was simply a way that they used to describe things like psychotic episodes or epilepsy. But there's no such thing as demons. I think that there would hardly be anybody that would agree with that today because as we have opened the doors to the occult in the United States, we're now beginning to see what they've seen in third world countries for a long time. But on the other hand, people have swung the pendulum in Christian circles to say that all of our problems are caused by demons. Uh, They they basically say, if you have a problem, we're going to get somebody to come in who can determine what demon it is that's causing that problem, and we'll cast that demon out. An example of that was in the 1980s, a very popular Southern Baptist evangelist named James Robinson, in a book called Thank God I'm Free, talked about his struggle with lust. He, He said he had such a Satan had such a grip of lust upon him that while he preached fiery sermons, he'd be undressing women in the audience while he preached. And he said, finally, a charismatic layman put him in a chair and said, you've got a demon of lust. And he cast the demon of lust out. And he wrote this book that said, I felt like a claw was released and my lust problem was gone. And and can we talk? If that would work, I'd line every man up in the room right now. And in one easy moment, we'd get that thing taken care of. But what you've got to recognize when it comes to spiritual warfare is that we actually have three enemies. We fight the devil, but we also fight the world. 
And we, we have a world that throws temptation in front of our face constantly. And we also have something inside of us, a part of us that still longs for sin called the flesh. And so if we're going to get spiritual victory, it's not just a matter of saying, I'm going to cast demons out of Christians. Now, I do believe in Ephesians 4, it says, don't let the devil get a foothold in your life. I think there are times he can get a grip on us. But what I would plead is this. Say the term demon possession for those who match what we're seeing in the New Testament. Here's a man that was under control. When Jesus cast the demon out, he went into convulsions. You could see something over the top because of his involvement in the occult. And unfortunately, I've had the experience of dealing with some demon-possessed people in the past. I'll tell you of one. I had a young man when I was in Georgia who came up to me and he shared that he was into white magic and, and uh, he liked the power. Uh, one of the Christians in the church and I counseled with him and said, you have got to accept Christ and you have got to renounce this involvement in the occult. We, we turned to Ma uh, Acts 19 where in Ephesus they actually burned their occult material. He said, I'm not going to do it. I love the power. Well, he came to see me at church on Wednesday night after that. His eyes were glazed. And when I looked at him, I did something I haven't done before, and I sure haven't done since. I said, tell me your name. I, I knew his first name. He said, my name is, and he gave me three names. Then his voice changed, and he said, Beelzebub. So another voice was speaking through him. Now notice he had gotten into this possession through involvement in the occult. Well, what happened then was I called for every deacon I had in the place. <laughs> And I said, we're going to pray for him. So I put him in the midst and I began to pray for him. And then I changed my prayer to praying against Beelzebub specifically. When I did that, it set him off. He began to throw people around. He was 150 pounds and throwing 200 people around. He began to froth at the mouth. He went into my office and frothed over everything. Uh, we called the police. They arrested him as he was being taken out in handcuffs he put a death curse on me, upon my wife. He put a curse upon our house that it would burn down. The police informed us that night that he was actually wanted for arson. And so when I have somebody come and say, I had a demon of lust cast out. I want to go, I've met real demons. <laughs> you know, don't trivialize something like that. Um, by the way, this whole thing, he has authority over the demons. That night, Karen and I wondered, what should we do? And we came up with this plan. We said, wait a minute, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we decided that we wouldn't worry about it. We have the champion in our heart. And we went to bed that night and just slept soundly. So here you've got Jesus showing his mastery over the devil. Now we move to verse 29 of chapter 1. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law. This is Simon Peter. The Catholic Church tells us that he's the first pope. Well, did you notice he's married? I hope he's married because it'd be a bum deal to get a mother-in-law if you didn't get a wife. So uh, here's Simon's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once. So he went and took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her and she began to serve him. When evening came after the sunset, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with varied diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I am currently watching the second season of The Chosen. There's one episode where Jesus had spent all day long, one-on-one, -on -one, healing people, 
And in the end of the episode, he comes in hardly able to move. The Bible says, tells us in the Gospels that when he healed something, something went out of him. Can you imagine how exhausted he was with the sunset evening service that went into the night until no one was left unhealed? But look what he does, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. What an example for us of the need and the priority of prayer. But look what happens. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. I can just see this. This is my additions here. Master, this is where you are. You know, everybody's talking about last night. We can't wait for tonight. This is going to be a bigger crowd. We can't wait to see more stuff. Look what Jesus says. He said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. They were focusing on the stuff Jesus had as his party, the preaching the message. Well, in chapter 1, verse 40, we meet an encounter with a leprous man. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See what... See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But he went out, began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that no one could enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. Now, folks, leprosy was the most feared disease of that day and time. It was deadly. If you got it, you would die. It was contagious, so you didn't want to be around someone. It turned a person not only into an outcast, they were required for the rest of their life, once they were seen to have leprosy, they could get no closer than 30 feet of another person, and they had to yell, unclean, unclean, when somebody came by. Can you imagine when you yelled, unclean, you had leprosy, you had what everybody feared, the kind of stares you would get, the fear or the hatred you would see in people's eyes. But not only that, they would become an ogre because... What leprosy does is you no longer have the ability to feel pain, and so you get infections, you get the, and eventually you have things like your fingers falling off or uh, your face becoming dis, dis, uh, disformed, uh, deformed. So here's a man who is full of leprosy, and he says, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. Now, you've got to understand, he'd had leprosy a while, he'd been an outcast a while, and that's why he said, if you're willing. He didn't doubt that Jesus could heal him, he just wondered, would Jesus want to heal somebody like me? Can, can I give you a spiritual application? I believe that there are a lot of people out there who have done things that have just messed their lives up. And they hear that Jesus can forgive, and they hear that Jesus can change life, but they wonder as they look in the mirror, who in the world would want to touch someone like me? Who in the world would want to do something for someone like me? And what, and if you'll notice what Jesus did, the order was he touched him first and then he healed him. I believe the man needed the touch as much as he needed the healing. And so here's Jesus touching him, restoring him. When I served a, as a pastor in Oklahoma, I went to visit a man who's who had visited our church from a neighboring community. 
He and his wife were members of a small uh, church in that town. Uh, she had come to the country to, because he had, he had forced her. She hated living in the country. She was a city girl. And after several months, they, they came to the little community church, had 35 people. He heard the gospel. He accepted Christ. It was all real to him. She was bored. She was rebellious. After six months, she started having an affair with one of the good old boys from the community, and they ran off together to Texas. Can you imagine the scandal in a little community that had probably 15 houses when this city woman's done come and stole Corky? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and she was gone six months until just before Christmas and just before Christmas. And by the way, the entire time that she was gone, he got his four kids, five, six, seven, and eight, up every Sunday morning, dressed them and got them to church. They never missed. Every night he prayed, Lord, send Mama home. Just before Christmas, she called and said, I could, could I come home? And they put up welcome home mama signs. And they took her in and they rejoiced. And the next day he called the pastor and said, I've got good news. God has answered our prayers. My wife is home. He said, don't you let that woman come to church until she's apologized to everybody in the county. Well, they went to church and none of the 35 people spoke to them. Uh, they were obviously ostracized. Well, that was the reason why sometime after that he came to visit my little church seven miles away. I went to visit them. When I walked up, he says, this is the pastor at Eastman Baptist. And she began to sob uncontrollably. Can God ever forgive me? Can God ever forgive me? And I had my Bible and I showed her verses on forgiveness. And I tried my best to convince her, that, but she could not believe it. Can I tell you why she couldn't believe it? She couldn't believe that God could forgive her because the people of God hadn't forgiven her. So I went to church the next Sunday and I said to my ladies, there's a lady in this town, Bernieville. She needs to be loved. And my ladies gave her a barrage of cake and pies that week. Came over and loved on her. And one of, one of the girls started walking with her uh, for exercise. And she came into the church. Her heart was open, became a Christian. But she was one of those outcasts that wasn't sure that God would even want her. Well, what we find when we change to the next chapter, you've, you've seen these things uh, begin to get tension between the Pharisees and Jesus. We're going to see a battle between Jesus and the Pharisees, and I'm going to use a term that I need to define. We're going to see Jesus battling something called legalism. Now, let me define what I mean by legalism. Legalism is when you do an overemphasis on keeping the laws, where you make religion only a matter of rule-keeping, but a second thing that legalists do is they inevitably add more rules to what you actually find in the Bible. So it's an overemphasis on rules to make your religion all about rule keeping. Then it's adding extra rules. So look with me at chapter two and we'll begin to see this battle between Jesus and the Pharisees. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together. There was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, now think about this. If you were in the room, just saw a paralyzed man being lowered down, what would you think the next words would be? Get up and walk. But instead, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you need to know this. That man thought his greatest need was to walk again. 
But Jesus saw his greatest need was to be forgiven. If he walked again without being forgiven, there would come a day in time when he would end this life and stand before God and it would not go well. So he needed forgiveness more. So here he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, here would come the Pharisees. Why, verse 7, does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. For who can forgive sins but God alone? And I love the logic of Jesus' reply. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And immediately he got up, took up the mat and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God. We have never seen anything like this. Here's Jesus saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. One of the basic facts of Christianity, you see it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins because folks, the world doesn't believe in forgiveness of sins. The world brands people. Jesus forgives people. And so here we've got Jesus forgiving in that battle. The Pharisees and Jesus is beginning to start to stir up. So what I want to do right now is I want to give you a contrast between Jesus and these legalists. Jesus and these Pharisees. In verses 13 through 17, the point I want to make here is that Jesus believed in forgiving sinners, but legalists did not. The Pharisees did not. So let's read that next story. Jesus went out again by the, beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi. By the way, in Mark and Luke, he's called Levi. In Matthew, he's called Matthew because just like today, people had two names. And his name was probably Matthew Levi. So he went by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, but he went by Levi, same person. So he, then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now this is on the seashore in the town where Peter, James, John, and Andrew lived. They were fishermen. And his tax booth is by the sea. He was the personal tax collector for Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now, I'm convinced that you won't find voting people in in the Bible because if Jesus said, do I hear a motion that we accept Levi? I don't think it would have happened. I think he'd have been voted out there. It's Jesus that took him. Here's a principle that we can look at later. If Jesus takes you, I got to take you. And so Jesus accepted him. Well, look what he does. He said, when he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. And when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Levi was friends with every outcast in that, in that town. So he threw a party and Jesus came. Now, let me tell you what's so scandalous in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, you can see this in Old Testament as well as New. There was something they cherished called table fellowship. You would not sit, the very act of sitting at the same table with somebody meant, I accept you. There's nothing between you and I. 
And, and so when he went and sat down at the table with a bunch of notorious sinners, the Pharisees would never have done that. He was saying, I accept you. I love you. There's nothing between you and I. And, and that was scandalous. You remember how Peter was pulled away by the peer pressure to get away from the Gentile table and go to the Jewish table because the Jews were strict about who they would eat with. Well, when they're criticizing him, why are you eating with these folks? He said, well, where does a doctor go? A doctor goes where the sick people are. And folks, we've got to constantly be reminding ourselves that the church is not a showcase for the best and brightest of the community. A, a church is a hospital for those who are sick and needy. Uh, are we like that? Do, are we like Jesus? Or are we like the Pharisees? That's a question I want you to be asking yourself constantly as you walk through these verses. By the way, I was almost kicked out of the Baptist. Um, when I was in that Oklahoma church, I didn't realize this. I'll tell you how I got out of it, but I, I didn't realize it. But there was going to be a vote to kick me out of the association, and that meant I would no longer be Baptist. I had one of my members, there was a place called the TNT Club. It was a honky-tonk. And on Friday and Saturday night, uh, they would have a country band. I led the country band guy to Christ, and he formed a country band in my church. We sang Christian country. But uh, what they would do is on Friday and Saturday night, they would do their line dance and drink a lot of beer. And then they'd go outside, and they had a rodeo arena, and you'd get on unbroken horses. And since you cannot feel any more pain because you're so drunk, you'd get on them and, they'd, and be, laugh when they threw you off. Well, one night, the owner was thrown off and broke his neck. He left behind a wife and a preschool little girl. So one of my members who provided horses said, Preacher, there's a widow lady just lost her husband. Would you go with me to visit the widow lady? Well, hey, that's what preachers do. We visit widow ladies. And so I said, sure. So I got in Jimmy's car with him. And then we pulled into the TNT club, went to the back, and there was the rodeo arena. And sitting on the bottom... Uh, seat on the rodeo arena was, was Maxine and her little girl. And I didn't see the owner of a bar. I saw a woman that just lost her husband and she's going to have to raise this little girl by herself. I sat down next to her and said, Maxine, my heart breaks for you and we love you. And you can count on us at Eastman. We're going to stand by you. She started coming to church. It took one year before she became a Christian. So for one year, every Friday and Saturday night, Saturday night she tended bar and then on Sunday morning, she brought a little girl and came to church. Now, when she did become a Christian, she turned the honky-tonk into a roller skating rink. So she, it, it wasn't a forever thing. But that was a year. And during that year time, I got call after call from Baptist preachers. I hear you're allowing a bar owner to come to your church. Don't you value our reputation as Baptists? And what I didn't know, I, I left that church uh, that summer. Uh, to go to Georgia in, in August. The association meeting was October. They had already planned to put me up for charges. It's just I got out of Dodge. And so I didn't get officially voted out. But doesn't that sound more like the Pharisees than Jesus? Here's Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. Number two, the second thing that gives a contrast is verses 18 through 22. Legalists have routines without reality. Legalists have routines without reality. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast on that day. So, so basically, let me explain what was happening. We don't know what the routine of John the Baptist's disciples were, but we do have rabbinical writings, so we know what the Pharisees did. They fasted every Tuesday and every Friday during daylight hours only. So, so every week on Tuesday and Friday, they didn't eat during the daylight, and during that time, they didn't shave, they didn't comb their hair, they went around, woe is me, let's eat worms. I, I'm, I'm fasting, trying to draw attention to the fact that they were fasting. They did it simply because it was Tuesday and Friday. And so why don't your disciples fast? Because they don't have a reason to right now. When you're at a wedding, you don't fast. But when the groom is taken away, they'll fast then. So they had routines that had no reason behind it. Now, there's a lot of routines that we get into the Christian life that underlying they are, they're good routines. But you've got to remember, the routine does not give you credit. It's what it's meant to do. For instance... I made a vow to God in 1974 that I'd never miss a day reading the Bible. And I haven't except when I was in a coma. And so I've read the Bible every day. But I want to tell you something. Sometimes I read the Bible and said, I made a vow. Hand me that book. And I read a little bit and said, there, God. I don't think I got credit for that day, do you? You don't get brownie points for the routines. The whole purpose of a quiet time is to get you into the presence of Jesus. So we've got to be careful about having routines without reality. But here's the last part of this battle. Legalists add extra rules to the law. Now follow with, we got, excuse me, we got two more things to go. In verse 23, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now I've got to top, stop right there. They were accusing them of breaking the, the law. But folks, I challenge you, they had not broken what was written in the Old Testament. All that was said about the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The word holy means different. Six days shall you labor, one day shall you rest. That's it. But what these Pharisees had done, if you go and find something called the Talmud, it was written just a little after Jesus' day and time, but all of these extra rules that they were creating has now been put in a book called the Talmud. There are 54 pages of rules and regulations of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Took this one little simple command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor, one day you're... And they got 54 pages of regulations. For instance, um, they said if a tailor... Uh, took off his jacket and he'd left a needle in it on, as the sun set on, the, on Friday on the Sabbath. And the next morning put it on and forgot that he had his needle on and walked around. He had broken the Sabbath because he was carrying his instrument of work around. If a beggar were to come to your door and ask for alms, if you put your money hands up so that he picks it out of your hand, you have not broken the Sabbath. But if you put the money in his hand, you had broken the Sabbath. They counted exactly how many steps you could take and walk on the Sabbath. If you took one more than that, you'd broken the Sabbath. They said that you could help things, you could keep things from getting worse, but not make them better. For instance, if you were to walk outside, like uh, we have a member of the choir I just saw on a little scooter because he hit a pothole with his foot and broke his foot. 
Well, suppose you have a compound fracture where the, the, it's, it's bleeding. You could stop the flow of blood, but you could not set it until after the Sabbath was over. You could keep it from getting worse, but you couldn't make it better because that would be breaking the Sabbath. Whew. Can you imagine living with 54 pages of rules about the Sabbath? And they picked this. So what, what had happened in the Old Testament? The Old Testament said to the farmers, you've got to leave that which is along the side of the road. Don't harvest that because the travelers may need to get something just to pop in their mouth to keep them going while they're walking. Because back then, this is hard to believe, there was no McDonald's. And so you, you couldn't just pull in and get something while you traveled. So if, if it were Henderson County and the farmers were here, they'd have to leave the trees alongside the road. You have to leave. So if a traveler were to pick up an apple, they could pick it. You couldn't get a bushel of apples, but you could pick an apple. So here they were. They popped some grain in their mouth. while They had not broken the law, but they had broken those extra rules. Now, why did they come up with these extra rules? There's a concept here that the Pharisees had that sometimes seeps into us as well. Their motivation was to build a wall around the law that was further than the law so that you won't get close enough to the actual laws to break it. So if it says, don't break the Sabbath, or keep it different and rest, let's do this. Let's add all these rules so you'll never get close enough to actually break in the actual law. And that was called building a law around the Sabbath. And what that meant, and Jesus, let me read on what he said here. Uh, verse 27, then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That one little phrase, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You've distorted everything. Why did God give you this great commandment that says you can only work six days and not seven and there's going to be one day you can look forward to? Because... The Lord knew in this world that there are people who could become your master or become your boss and they would work you until you died. And life can be hard. So God made sure that no matter how hard your life was, you'd at least have one day where you could catch your breath and get your rest. One day to look forward to. The Sabbath was made as a gift for man. But here's what happened. They had turned man into the slave of the Sabbath. Now they had all these rules. Listen, folks, if you lived in that day and time and you saw the sun setting on the Sabbath, you went, good, I get my day. No, you would go, who in the world can keep up with all these rules the next 24 hours? They had distorted it. They were making them walk on eggshells. Do we ever do that? Well, can we talk? We have so many extra rules. Of it. Now, I've seen a lot of these go away in my day and time. For instance... When I was a kid, we were told that you can't let Baptist kids play pool. We've got pool tables in the crosswalk building now. But you can't do it because, listen, if they start liking pool, they might one day go to the pool hall. And what do they sell at the pool hall? Beer. So if you don't want them to drink beer, don't let them play pool. One of the big ones was don't play cards. When I was in that little country church in Oklahoma, they believed playing cards was sinful. If you let your kids start playing hearts, it won't be long before they're playing five-card stud. So don't let them hold. So what they did was they took dominoes, and we played every game you could play with cards. Every Sunday night, we go to somebody's house and play dominoes. But here's the big one for Baptists. Baptists don't dance. 
Because you see, you're sitting here and you got two single people and they're swaying with the music and temptation rises and it might lead to something else. So if you don't want something else to happen, you don't let them dance. So Baptists don't dance. All of that was that building that wall around the law. In 1995, Karen looked at me and she saw an audition poster for Sound of Music. And she'd given up so much for me in, 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 in my ministry. She's very talented. She starred in a PBS, uh, Atlanta, Alabama PBS production of an opera when she was a teenager. Uh, she could have gone a long way if she hadn't married Lowe. And, um, and so here we were. And she saw this thing, audition for Sound She says, I want to go out for Maria. And I said, I'll go with you and be there and rooting for you. And it dawned on me because I'd seen the movie, then the captain was going to kiss Maria. So I felt led of God to go out for the captain. And we got, we got the role. We've got folks in our church that still remember all those years ago in 1995 when that happened. Uh, one of the scenes in that particular play is a very important scene. They, they're going to a, 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 a place where there's an Austrian waltz going on and they're doing a very elegant dance and and that was when they realized their feelings and then they break apart because they're beginning to sense that they're falling in love. So my challenge was a guy who's never danced had to look less awkward. <laughs> so that's what we practiced more than anything else in the play was the dance. Well, the thing was sold out. I don't even know how many performances. Sometimes we had two a day, but it was sold out. So hundreds and hundreds of people in Henderson County came to hear see the sound of music and watch the first Baptist pastor and his wife dancing on stage. So, the Sunday after it was done, I wrote this little ditty. Don't get excited, don't let feelings out. You're not Pentecostal, so don't jump and shout. We worship with order, we don't like a beat. Why the devil is there when you see dancing feet? Well, I tried to sit quietly to keep it all in. But as love reached my heart, my soul started to spin. I just wanted to tell him his love was so sweet. Now his love's in my heart and his joy's in my feet. Well, I get excited, my feelings get out. Well, I'm not Pentecostal, but still I can shout. You can worship in order and still like a beat. Well, the Lord helped this Baptist to have dancing feet. The Lord helped this Baptist to have dancing feet. And some of you remember when I did that in the pulpit right after that. Let me tell you the danger of legalism. When you come up with these extra rules, when you make it all about rule keeping, what you're going to do is you're going to turn away people from Christ. And they really haven't been turned away from Christ. They've been turned away from the legalism. We have young people who walk away from church because they don't get it. They think that that's what Christianity is all about. And they never got to take a good look at Jesus. Well, the last bit of the controversy, the battle between these two, is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man who was there had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. 
He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Now, I want you to notice this. He is openly picking this fight. Here's what happened. He walked in. The Pharisees were there. They, they probably looked around the room. You know he has no respect for this. Oh, you see over there? There's a man with a withered. Luke tells us it was a withered right hand. That's extremely bad in that culture. You know what he would probably do? He has no, no sense of reverence. He would probably heal that man. He doesn't have the decency to wait one more day before he heals this man. What would it hurt to go one more day? Jesus looked at him and said, I'm not going to make him go one more day without the use of his hand. You see the difference in the way the two viewed each other? And so he could have said this, hey, buddy, come here. Let's sneak off to the pastor's office and I'll heal that thing for you. No, he picked this fight openly. You there with the withered hand, stand up in, every, in front of everybody. Now look what happens. Then he said to them, verse 4, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And after looking around them at anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. The irony. Healing a man on the Sabbath is sinful Plotting the death of a man is not sinful on the Sabbath. Can you see how blinded they were? Oh, folks, there's nothing in the Bible that would forbid healing on the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus in another place when he healed someone in Luke 14, he says, which one of you uh, doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or a cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Of course there are things you do to make things better. So one of the things we've got to be constantly asking is, the Pharisees didn't believe in forgiveness. Jesus believed in forgiveness. The Pharisees had routines without reality. Is our walk with him real? The, the, the Pharisees were all about the rules and emphasis of rules and extra rules. Are, are we allowing religion to be something where you don't walk on eggshells, to be a blessing instead of a burden? And then lastly, for them, the rules were more important than people. And that's what happened at Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel. When the hippies began to come in, the members who had the money came to him and said, they go or, or, or we go because they're ruining the carpet with their bare feet. They don't know how to act in church. They're saying far out instead of amen. We can't have that. And they didn't see lost young people coming to Christ. They valued their pews and the way they were doing things more than people. And Jesus valued people more. And he did those extra rules. But we've got a lot to think of tonight, don't we? So I encourage you as you think through this lecture to ask yourself over and over again, am I more like Jesus or the Pharisees? And secondly, is my church more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? Thank you for listening.